Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Yes. Guys, welcome to Weekly Weights. Apparently, it's episode 121. Um, and we are joined today by a very special guest all the way from the United States of America. It's Steve DeNovi of PRS Performance, aka PR's Performance. Steve, you want to just give everybody a quick intro to who you are and how the acronym is said for your business? Sure. Um, yeah, Steve DeNovi from Springfield, Missouri. I don't know if anyone in Australia knows where that is. I was learning my provinces as well going through. Mm-hmm. I coach uh, TN and uh, you guys are from Melbourne and he's from Sydney. We're no, we're from Sydney. Well. We know TN. You're from Sydney as well? Okay. Uh, so, uh, just to stop you there, Springfield, that's the Simpsons, right? So, there's like 18 Springfields <laughs> in the US, but it's, it, no, it's, mine's not the right Springfield. I think it's Springfield, Illinois that's kind of the joke, but yeah, there's a ton of Springfields. They're everywhere. So, um, yeah, powerlifting coach. Uh, I mean, give a little quick rundown of kind of how I got here is I was, yeah. I, I graduated uh, with a sales management degree. Um, and immediately from there went into graduate school to work on my MBA. And while I was doing that was working as a personal trainer and just kind of fell in love with it. And so through some different things that happened, um, ended up getting the fitness management with gold's gym. Um, I'm not sure if Australia gold's gyms popular, but obviously that's pretty well known from Arnold and whatnot. Um, so I managed gold's gyms for about four or five years. Um, but then once I got married, um, I moved to where I am now. Um, and just kind of the opportunity kind of presented itself where I just was like, let's, I was already coaching a couple people in powerlifting pretty much for free. As most people start out kind of coaching a couple friends for free on the side. Um, and then my wife encouraged me. She's like, you just got to go for it full time. Um, so I went for it for about, I think it was about four and a half years ago. Uh, and then from there, been very, very fortunate that it's gone well, been able to build up. Um, I think probably what's got me on a lot of people's maps recently is I, I started coaching Sean Noriega and I mean, his reach is, is pretty enormous. So that's where a lot of people went from kind of knowing me kind of in more of a, a niche aspect um, to being a little bit more well-known and mainstream. Um, probably a lot from kind of you guys kind of seeing the outreach that's kind of given me as well. So. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that you're, that you're known for, or at least amongst the people who know you is how incredibly thorough and detailed the content you put out is. And for people who haven't checked out Steve's um, YouTube page, there's some videos that are well north of an hour where he talks about, you know, specifics of technique, he breaks down lift variations and things. So really, really thorough videos with really, really well explained rationales is the type of thing that you could certainly dive into. Today, what we wanted to talk specifically to Steve about was a bit of bench press technique stuff um, that he's been putting out recently and also just a couple of the principles um, surrounding exercise selection because he's recently put out a series talking about his favorite variations for each of the main lifts. Um, And I was kind of thinking about this when we were asking you on, I think, so it's 121 episodes now Mm -hmm. that we've done. It'd be very rare to talk for, you know, 250 odd hours about any given topic and not say the odd thing wrong. And I think that most of the stuff that Alex and I have said over time stands up pretty well, but a couple of things I've certainly changed my opinion on and I've really been sort of led in my thinking by people like Steve has been around bench press technique. So I'm really keen to kind of dive into, dive into bench press technique and some misconceptions with you. Are you ready to rock and roll, dude? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So I want to start with, with sort of presumptions about shoulder position and things in the bench because the conventional wisdom and certainly 
certainly what I was taught as I was coming up was that the shoulder should be maximally retracted the whole time when we bench, um, shouldn't be moving whatsoever. And everything just moves around that really stable base and we wedge it in against the bench. Um, starting from there, how close to true do you consider that to be? So I think that cue works. And a lot of these cues that get passed down, they work because as power lifters, we tend to bias into certain positions. Um, the fact of the matter is, is in the bench press, we bias into retraction. Now, I think where it gets kind of wrong is like we have to th understand that retraction is a degree, just like hip flexion is a degree, knee flexion is a degree. There's a degree of that range of motion. And in the sense of the bench press, while we are very much biased towards end range retraction, we aren't usually fully, fully retracted until the bottom of the, the press when we're pausing. Um, and I think where most people get it wrong, and it's kind of the issue is that they, 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 they overemphasize squeezing those shoulders together, kind of pinching them as hard as they can from the get-go. Um, and we'll probably kind of get to some of the things that kind of causes and whatnot, um, but they kind of get stuck there. Um, and the fact of the matter is as we press, there is some slight protraction. And I think that's also where people kind of get a misunderstanding is they think, oh, protraction is bad. We don't protract on the bench press. In the sense of like going into the bias of like protraction, like reaching in front of you and the shoulder blades wrapping around your body. No, we don't do that. But if we're reaching in range of retraction, we can't stay there. We have to slightly, slightly, slightly come away from that, which means there is a very slight amount of protraction. And even as we lock out and we finish the press, we are still biased into retraction. It's just that there is an act of protraction as we press so that in the sense of kind of the antagonistic muscles, the pecs and the triceps are working against retraction. They're trying to extend and in a sense protract and work the opposite way. And so if we're constantly trying to pin back and pin back and pin back, um, there's going to be some detriment in that in the sense of kind of those primary movers being able to kind of move in the way they want um, and then get our elbows to full lockout. So I think the, the first thing I just want to tease out is this semantic difference between position and action. So what you're saying is that we can be retracted in that our shoulders are relatively pulled together as opposed to spread apart. But depending on where you sit on that spectrum between retraction and protraction, you can also move. And it's the action of moving into more retraction or moving into more protraction that you're talking about here with a bias towards being retracted as your base state. Did that, the way I said that probably made it no clearer to anybody. But the point is that you can be in a relative position and still move in either direction from it. Correct. And I think that's something I have a YouTube video on this. And that was something people were like, oh, Steve says don't retract. I definitely don't say that. If you don't retract on the bench press, you're never going to touch your chest. If not, you're going to there's just going to be a lot of things that are going to go on. You are definitely retracted. It's just that I, I think one thing kind of going to retraction as well, the actual end range of retraction, like the last motion of retraction is actually a slight elevation. Um, and it's actually kind of like in, in sense of kind of where you should kind of feel it. People usually say feel like right in the middle of your back. That's actually kind of wrong in the sense of retraction actually has an action of those, um, those upper traps kind of creating elevation at the bottom. And so that's kind of what we're getting is usually we're retracting. And then that retraction that continues on the way down is that slight elevation, which to the naked eye, you don't really see. Um, and especially in the sense of like the modern day bench press of kind of higher arch and elevated rib cage, 
really that's just kind of going in the angle of gravity because the angle of gravity is going down to those upper traps. So kind of that retraction hap happens naturally in the sense of the bar path going right to kind of where that retraction occurs, if that makes sense. Sure. So if we've got this sort of framework that we can be mostly retracted and still have those movements into retraction and protraction to sort of facilitate us doing the movement, what should the relative movements be when we're bench pressing? Like if we go phase by phase, what types of things ought we see at the shoulder? So I think one of the one of my biggest cues, and this is this is one of the biggest things I preach in the sense of making sure to not over retract in your setup, is we need to make sure to be accountable to having our elbows locked in our initial setup. Which that kind of seems like a dumb thing to say. I mean, that's literally the rules of powerlifting: is lock your elbows, get a start command, and then descend. And, and, and there's lots of people who have issues and are getting told to re-rack the weight because they have soft elbows. The reason they have soft elbows 99% of the time is because they're just trying to over-retract. Um, and the actual kind of physiology of that is the long head of the tricep inserts at that top kind of point of the scapula. So if we're constantly pulling those back as hard as we can and forcing just, just maximal retraction, it's going to pull at the long head of the tricep. It's going to bend our elbow and we're never going to be able to actually have them locked. So um, I think one of the biggest things that I really preach is one, make sure to start with locked elbows and then you can retract, like allow retraction, but only to the degree that locked elbows allows you to. Um, and then as we descend, we can kind of get that last little bit. And that's kind of where I talked about. And then I, I, my favorite cue and a very, very common cue is just reach your chest to the bar um, versus thinking about pinching your shoulder blades back. I don't like about, I personally don't like any kind of cue that tends to think about the bar coming to you. Um, because I think that usually tends to bias people into wanting dumping the bar. They kind of flatten out everything like the, the old school cue of row the bar to you. I'm not a fan of it. I want everything reaching up to the bar to stop it. Um, so that kind of is like a cue that kind of kills a couple of birds with one stone. It, it kills the bird of reaching the chest up, chest up to stop the bar. So we have a solid pause and a good rib cage position. But that's also usually going to result in that last little tiny degree of retraction that we kind of need that now can happen since that tricep is now and since lengthening. It's now coming back. That angle of the humerus is coming more parallel or below our body angle. Um, and so the scapula can actually move in that full retraction because of now the positional aspects of the other muscles that are either engaged in protraction um, and or directly attached to that scapula. So, um, and then really going from there, you talked about kind of since finishing the movement, I would never cue protraction. Like I'm never telling anyone like protract, like you would like if you're some, you're trying to punch someone. Um, because like I said, we're not truly going to actually protract in the sense of what people think of protraction. We're just going to have a slight relative change from being fully retracted to just being a little less retracted, which going back to what you said, that's an action of protraction. So my general cue is just to drive our back into the bench as we drive the bar away. I mean, that's just, that's just the, that's just law of inertia and law of equal and opposite reaction. In squat, we drive our feet to the floor, the bar goes up. Um, in bench, we drive our upper back through the bench and then we press the bar away. So um, usually most people, if they're gonna lock it out, are going to go through a, some type of relative protraction because again, we're not gonna be able to lock that barbell out with our elbows if we don't. So um, yeah. yeah. So I had a question on rel the relative protraction there. So obviously you mentioned that we're in a degree of protraction in our starting position in order to mm -hmm. get our elbows locked in the first place. When you finish the press, are you aiming for that same level of protraction? So in, in other words, are you trying to finish the barbell in the same position 
in the start as uh, in the finish? Yeah, for the most part, I'd say so. I think if you look at most people, though, when they actually get to truly maximal weights, like a true like grinder one RM, um, you'll see a lot of times how when as they press, you'll see kind of their chest dip and drop, um, which you won't see more on like repetition work. And that goes back to almost kind of having the bias and the protraction a bit more because we're having to be really truly trying to get those pressing muscles, the triceps, the pectorals, um, the anterior deltoids doing their job to the fullest extent to lock it out. And so while I'm not going to cue that, um, I think you're usually going to see that at a relative one RM is people are going to start to actually protract a touch more. Um, mm. and they're going to kind of drop their chest, um, just because of the action of those muscles kind of having to take over so much and fight against the act of trying to stay retracted. So, mm. so yeah, something that I always cue with, with rep work is to finish where you start, mm-hmm. but then with singles, it's almost like, just complete the press with full force. Yep. Yep. Is that percent kind of similar that. to the way that you would think about it? Yep, for sure. And I think that's, I think, like I said, you can cue that. I think that's just kind of what people tend to do at this, at the same time though. Like it's just, it's just like, even if you don't cue someone at a one RM just to finish the press, they're going to do it. I mean, you're, you're not going to want the bar to drop on your neck. So you're going to finish the press out and do whatever you can to lock it out. And the other thing is, just because you know that there's not another rep, you're not worried about maintaining some certain position to be in alignment for the next rep. So again, I think that's just something that tends to happen naturally just from knowing what is the next step in the movement, so. So I have a question, I'm not sure how to phrase it. That's the best type. Um, I think one of the main justifications we have for this idea of like setting and maintaining maximal retraction when we bench is that it shortens the range of motion. So the Mm -hmm. argument would be that it's like most mechanically efficient. You've spoken about how some some movement into protraction and into retraction as we descend and stuff actually facilitates the muscles getting into positions that they want to get into. So I guess like in light of that assumption that we're most mechanically efficient when we maximally shorten range of motion. One, can we still bench with a short range of motion if we allow movement at the shoulder? And two, if not, or even if, how does um, how does allowing that movement of the shoulder actually leverage our muscular system better? So one thing I'll start with, and the kind of the, the, the thinking of kind of when we're thinking about this relative degree of retraction and protraction that occurs, the more kind of shorter range of motion bench you have, let's say the super high arch benchers, you may have almost minuscule movement. You may not even reach full protract or retraction or pro like you're, you're, you may not move very much at all because you don't really need to truly fully retract because the humerus never even gets close to kind of that parallel to the floor aspect. So um, I think that's, I, I kind of made a note. I think that's where that cue of pinch the shoulder blades back can be different based on the person. Let's let's take where this cue comes from. It comes from old school powerlifting where everyone's super heavyweights and they have the close grip bench and they it just because of their general girth of being heavyweights in this multiply lifting where we get a lot of cues from. Um, their relative range of motion isn't that long. Like th- those big super heavyweights tend to never get their humerus all the way to parallel. If I mean I have monkey arms, my humerus goes way below parallel. That cue makes a bit more sense to them because they never actually have to go through much retraction and protraction. Does that make sense? Mm. Um, Whereas someone like me who has monkey arms, um, I'm going to have to go through a lot larger degree of shoulder flexion and abduction 
which is going to require some different changes in relative retraction and protraction than someone who's got that crazy high arch bench that only moves one inch. So I think that's one of the big things to clarify and why that, you know what, that, that cue can work for some people because that cue for a person who has a super high arch bench, they're pretty much just going to pin those shoulders down um, the entire time because they don't really move much. They're just having this just very slight movement of the humerus. Um, so kind of getting, Rephrase your question. I, I got off on a tangent there to kind of then answer the question, but what's the question no, again? Right. So part, well, part one was addressing this assumption that maximum retraction minimizes range of motion. Can we allow shoulder movement and still have a short range of motion bench? That was part one. Okay. So yes. So again, I'm going to say one thing, like I, I'm not saying don't retract. I'm just saying retract only as much as the elbows can stay locked. So again, this is powerlifting. Literally that's the rules and there, we that what we have to do. Um, so in the sense of like, um, I, I mean, you may have lifters like this. I definitely do that. I have to tell them all the time, dude, you got to stop starting with your elbows already bent at 30 degrees by trying to like cut range of motion and get this range of motion increase because you're not going to get a start command. Like we've got to lock the elbows. So in the sense of like people being scared that that's going to not, it's going to make the range of motion longer. It's, it's more so going to make sure they get a start command. And they actually have a more efficient press in the sense of the rules within powerlifting. But even within that, like I said, if we're let's let's say we're we're locking the elbows, we're not actually reaching the last in degree of retraction because of that. That's where we're cueing that active retraction, which in the sense of kind of using leg drive and then also the chest up to the bar, we're in a sense kind of elevating our chest and our rib cage up to the bar to meet it. So we're kind of trying to meet them in between. Now it's obviously a lot more of the bar coming down, but we're trying to kind of meet that chest up through that kind of active increase in retraction, as well as just using that leg drive to kind of reach that rib cage up. So in the grand scheme of things, it may seem like we're starting a bit farther away, but then as the press actually comes along, that range of motion is, is, is decreasing because of that action. That makes perfect sense. Then the second part, and you've sort of begun to allude to it. You spoke about how in order to, in order to adduct our humerus, we need to have some relative protraction happen. Why is it that even were we to presume it lengthens your range of motion, why might we leverage our muscular system better to allow some movement at the shoulder? What does that protraction actually allow us? So it, it goes back to like, I think that this easiest way for most people to conceptualize because there's, there's, the pectoral major doesn't actually connect to the scapula. It connects to I think the humerus or whatnot, but the humerus can't really adduct without a slight bit of protraction. So in the sense of like, if we're constantly holding that uh, humerus into abduction, well, what's the action of the pectoral? It's to adduct. It's kind of the same thing of like in, in the squat, um, if you're over biasing into the hamstrings, people say, sit back, sit back, sit back. And what they don't realize is that the hamstring is over tensioning. It's actually pulling at the quadricep. And so now the relative weight on the bar has increased in sense of the quadricep demand, because now you have things pulling against the muscle that are invisible. You say, oh, I'm still lifting 500 pounds. Well, you're not. You're literally because of how you're positioning things. You are now having to lift more because that primary mover is now fighting against another muscle trying to do the opposite reaction. Again, that makes perfect sense. So just to make this even more explicit, the flip side is there, there must be disadvantages, right, to being stuck there. So you're saying you're making the, mm -hmm. the relative weight on the bar heavier. I presume that I presume that your sticking point in your bench might be affected if you're really, really stuck in retraction. Is there something that you see? Are, are there signs that you might see in a lifter that would indicate that this person is almost trying to over squeeze the shoulders and not just let them move? 
Um, I mean, the single biggest sign I'm looking for, like that's very visible for anyone. And it's not even talking so much about sticking point, but just like if they are starting with one of their elbows soft or both, a lot of times I think what's more common is you see one, one elbow soft and, and like almost like clockwork, that person's going to complain that that pec minor hurts. Um, and that kind of gets into more pec minor positioning and um, elevation versus depression, which eleva- I don't know if we're going to talk about elevation versus depression, but that's another big argument of which one you go to. Um, it's very much like elevation is like protraction where people say, no, you never want to ever do that. Um, where depression is like this amazing thing you should supposedly stay in. So, um, but getting back to that. Are we talking emotionally here or are we talking muscular system at this point? Uh, completely emotional. This is like in the middle of bench press. Are you depressed? Like, are you, are you, are <laughs> you sad? I think everyone I am every, every time I've ever bench pressed, I'm very sad because I don't like that lift because I suck at it. So it makes me very depressed. So that makes three of us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you get depressed, you obviously do some deep thinking and then you're on a podcast immediately, you know, expanding about yeah. bench for hours. And that's, that's the benefit of depression, isn't it? It's many of the greatest yeah. thinkers have it. <laughs> of course. For sure. Um, we will, you know, we should talk about elevation and depression, but you were saying the biggest sign was the unlocked elbows. So and angle often it's one elbow. And it's going back up too. So I wanted to finish with the ascent. Like you get to a purse, like like let, let's take the the aspect of a wide grip bencher versus a close grip bencher. Wide grip benchers tend to be more stuck off the chest, and that's because of the leverage position of the pectorals and kind of where you're gonna be weaker. And close grip benchers get more stuck at lockout. Close grip benchers don't tend to have an issue with locking out their elbows as much because they they tend just because of close grip, the relative angle of the humerus has to be more biased in the more protraction because the more that humerus comes around our body, the more that shoulder blades snap. So usually the close grip benchers don't have this issue as much. It's the wide grip benchers. Sometimes you'll see, okay, they're going to get a little stuck off their chest, but then they get the lockout and they have this like second sticking point and they shouldn't be that that's where you're like, that's where you're, you're pulling those shoulder blades back when, and that's pulling the tricep back with it. And you can't just lock out those elbows. So that's kind of where you see this like second mystical sticking point that shouldn't exist if they're really just kind of holding those shoulders back and not allowing any movement at lockout. This is like a gotcha moment. You've basically described me enormously well in a lot in a large part of this. I have a left a left elbow that likes to be that likes to be a little bit flexed on unrack. And mm-hmm. I also have that very, very high sticking point when my bench gets hard. Does your pec minor hurt also? Yeah, here and there. Everything um, hurts. Yeah, everything hurts. Um but no, there is a very large part of myself that I hear in this, and it's interesting to hear your experiences corroborated. So I'm sure there are a few listeners, few listeners whose minds are starting to tick over listening to this. The extra prong before we go back to elevation and depression, though, that I wanted to talk about was the other assumption about retraction or just being stuck in one position, which is that it lends us more stability. Because you know, if we consider stability and mobility to be sort of two things that we trade off against each other, the assumption would be the less shoulder movement we have, the more stable we are, and the more stable we are, the better. Why might or might not that be true? <clears throat> so it, how I kind of approach position and stability in the bench press is rib cage position dictates most of what's going on. Um, so if we talk about elevation and depression, we'll get to that. I don't actively teach anyone to depress. I think rib cage position then creates depression because if your rib cage is starting to angle up, you're now going to more internal rotation. The shoulder position and sense in relation to the chest is now getting pulled under naturally without even trying because if the, if the rib cage comes up, that means the chest is coming over the shoulders a bit more. So we're now pulling ourselves into depression. So going more of kind of what you're talking about though, and this is, this is kind of why some people like to kind of like go into this kind of like 
super retracted state. It's why some people like to like on squat, like to like really arch their low back and interior tilt is active versus passive stabilization. Passive stabilization is resting more like the end range of a joint. That's that it's, it's, it's comfy. Like when we stand and we sit into our right hip, just because we're tired of standing, we're, we're, we're sitting in the passive stabilization. We're just sitting in that end range of that hip joint just to kind of stabilize on bone on bone. So we're not have to like actively having to kind of stabilize and control ourselves where active stabilization is, is kind of more that mid range where the muscles actually having to do the work. Um, and I think when people kind of get into that kind of like fully retracted state, they're trying to kind of like fit into the passive stabilization. They're just kind of letting this bone on bone and this smashing the shoulder blades together and this, this end range, just kind of hold them in the place um, versus letting all these co-contracting and antagonistic muscles stop being so antagonistic and more be kind of uh, sufficient in aiding each other. It's the same thing. I'm, I use the squat just because um, I just like the squat. So I'm going to go to it. Um, if we bias too far one way or the other, we tend to see um, this instability back and forth, especially with the knees and whatnot. Um, if we're biasing too much in, to the front, to the back, uh, we see start to see kind of external or internal rotors, internal rotators kind of take over. And we see the same thing with the bench press too. If we're biasing too much one way or the other, um, those muscles aren't really stabilizing in the sense of kind of what they meant to be. They're more, they're more passively stabilizing, but they're not actively stabilizing. So I don't know if I explained that super well, but hopefully that made sense, at least in the passive, the active stabilization aspect of it. No, it made some sense. I think while we're, while we're somewhere near the area, we should talk about the whole elevation and depression thing. So you said you don't cue active depression. You talk about rib cage position and that basically puts the shoulder in depression. Mm -hmm. um, why is elevation hard done by? So why is having your shoulder shrug up um, beaten on by people so much? And what's been the advantage of not focusing too much on it for you? Um, so I would argue we don't really want to be too far biased one way or the other. Um, just like any movement, we don't want to bias too far back on our heels versus our toes. We don't want to be too hingy on a deadlift and not use our quads, but we don't want to just squat the weight up and same thing on a bench press. We don't want to be overly depressed versus overly elevated because one, like I said, full retraction has an aspect of elevation. Um, and what you'll actually find, it's kind of be kind of hard to be able to kind of show this. Um, I'm going to kind of do it just so I can kind of explain it, but obviously on a podcast, you can't see it, but I, I recommend anyone listening to this want kind of proof, do it is allow yourself to go through a full range of motion and then get that last bit of retraction, but don't ever think about depression. Just go all the way through. Do the next thing, overly depress and pull that down. Or actually I should say this, go in the full, full retraction, which is gonna have that little bit of elevation and then try and pull that shoulder down. You'll literally feel it stuck. It can't go anywhere. Like you're gonna try and do it. And it, it, you can't- Why is it doing it on air right now? It's very hard, yeah. yeah. Isn't it? Because you yeah. can't, because Guess what? Retraction has a sense of elevation. So like, if you're telling me, oh, the best way to get retracted is we have to be super depressed too. Well, literally, no, literally, you just, you just don't know biomechanics. Like if you're overly depressed, it's actually gonna cut off a little bit of your ability to retract. And so what you're usually going to see is, is someone lose stability in their shoulder. And that's where you kind of see this, the, I mean, the common thing you see with someone overly depressed is they dump the bar and then they start to kind of internally rotate that you see that shoulder kind of pop forward because there's nowhere to go. It can't continue to retract and kind of get into that elevation. It just kind of pops forward um, and you get into this sink and heave motion. So, yeah, I mean, it literally, I mean, um, I'm, I'm going to 
put a plug here because I don't know if you guys watch this. Do you know who I can't stop saying his name right? Coach Cassum. Do you know yeah, who I he do is? know who he is. Yeah. Okay. He has He's a video playing. series recently about bench press shoulder movement. Yeah. I don't know if you're having me on anything to do with kind of why that video series came about and who the people are that are saying to overly retract and depress where that came from. Do you know where that came from? No, call him out. Yeah, yeah, talk some shit. It's, in for, it's in from Australia. That's why I thought you had me on. Andrew Locke. Oh, I didn't actually know. Andrew, Andrew with, Locke. Um, Andrew Locke right. put the video out. Right. Uh, I, I don't really agree with anything he says. Um, Australian strength coach is the one that then put it out. I, I have a little more respect for him. He's done some good things. I, I don't agree with that video. But, yeah, Andrew Locke put that out. I, I don't know really where he got that from and so coach Cassim did an entire video series basically just saying yeah that that was ridiculous and one of the, the worst parts about that Andrew Locke video is he used uh Kirill's like 730 something world record bench as oh, an I did example say that video. I did say that video right yeah and I he tried to that. argue that Kirill never had any protraction and literally you can look at it and see it and so Cassim literally went and put images of the humerus to show the change in the shoulder position and protract, I don't know, I just he just blew it all up. Like literally, if you watch, you watch Andrew's two minute video versus you watch Cassim's. I think it was like between the four videos is like over an hour long. Like you're like, yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously one person who knows what they're talking about, and the other person wears a chain around their neck with a lock. <laughs> yeah, you know what? We should get them both on, and so they can debate on our show. We actually have had somebody request for us to have Seb Orb on. Um, I don't know Seb personally. His his brother used to work at the gym that Alex and I worked at, and he was always a really good guy. And Seb's pretty funny on his video Q and A's. So yeah, I like, actually, I like him. I like he, him. He'd be pretty good value. Um, but no, that's interesting. We, I actually hadn't watched that. I had watched. Um, I can't say his name either, but Coach Cass's videos, mm-hmm. and I thought they were really, really good. So there's another plug. Um, he's N one training and N one education, and then through that you'll find Coach Cassum. Mm-hmm. To anybody who doesn't follow him currently, I think he puts out some really thoughtful information. So that's pretty cool. Where do we, how do we get to that? Uh, elevation, about, de- elevation, depression. Elevation and depression. Do you have anything else depression that you wanted to stuff. Yeah, did you have so, anything else that you wanted to, to say on that? Yeah, so going back to it, that's where I'm saying like, we don't want to overly depress either. Just like people are saying you shouldn't elevate. I'm agreeing with that. Don't like try and super elevate. Now, does retraction have a sense of elevation? Yes, but not like you're shrugging your shoulders up. Um, there's, there's obviously issues with that, but I'm saying there's also issues with trying to overly depress. Um, one of them being, like I said, you're actually cutting off end range retraction. The other one is people think like the lats somehow depress your shoulders and that's not correct. The, the, the main shoulder depressor is your pec minor. Um, and that's another reason. So I'm talking like, I go back to people who like, the pec minor issues, they tend to over retract one side and then they over depress and then boom, they have pec minor issues because you're literally just cranking down on that the entire movement. Um, and that's, it, it goes back to as well as we see that more often now because of the style of bench press people use where I think we saw you, you get more in kind of the old school style of bench press with the heave and the closer grip. Um, we saw more pec major tears and that goes back to in the sense of like tucking your elbows and heaving we're going to high degrees of external rotation with the humerus which external rotation is the opposite of what the pec's doing it stretches it to a greater degree snap we have an issue with the pec major where what we see more on the modern day bench press because of the rib cage elevation and the position we tend to do a pretty good job of kind of biasing a little bit more into IR and not overly externally rotating and keeping those elbows underneath. And so what we more see is these people overly retracting, overly depressing, thinking that's going to be the good thing to do. And then they're constantly hurting their pec minors from that. That's just, I mean, that I just, 
I see that so much. Um, and so many people, when they've kind of listened to what I've said on this aspect, they come back and be like, oh my gosh, my, like literally in two weeks, my pec minor doesn't hurt anymore. Well, yeah, because you're not just jamming it, constantly trying to keep that in depression and retraction. All right, so let's, um, let's summarize the shoulder position in the bench press um, with sort of an idea of what drills and exercises that you would prescribe your clients in regards to retraction, uh, retraction, depression, elevation, and protraction. Um, say that one more time. What do you, what do you mean by drills? So like, uh, like maybe a drill you might do before main lift to sort of cue a certain aspect of, of the movement that we're looking for, or so even, would, even if you don't use those, maybe some cues you might use to, to okay. get your lifters in the right positions. Yeah. I wouldn't say there's necessarily a drill that I think would help with that per se. Maybe something like, a. uh, uh, a, a, a serratus style pushup where you're actually pushing in the protraction, but I don't think that necessarily gets someone better in their setup. It just kind of helps more with the variability and actually seeing that kind of in range of protraction. Just kind of know what it feels like, um, which I think we'll kind of talk about um, later a little bit with kind of variability training, just kind of helping someone understand what is middle range because all we're always just retracted. We don't even know what protraction feels like. So that variability kind of helps with that. So if it was a drill, just doing something kind of in the sense of kind of where we're protracting, but in the sense of the setup, Honestly, one of the biggest things I'll have people do if they just will not stop having soft elbows is I tell them to raise their rack height up because mm. most people will set their rack height to where they can unrack it with pretty soft elbows and they'll just kind of pull it out and they'll never actually lock their elbows. Now, I'm not saying protract when you get it out of the rack, but you should be able to push it out of the rack in relative kind of protraction. Like you're actually going to protract out of the rack. Um, and that's actually something going back to, um, I might lose myself on a tangent here, going back to the video with Kirill, it was very obvious he had to protract out of the rack, even though it was being said that he was retracted the whole time because he did a good job of that. He actually, you have to actually kind of protract out of the rack. And then once you get it out of the rack, then you can let yourself kind of let gravity drop. And that's where I kind of cue in the sense of retraction is lock the elbows and then let gravity drop the weight in the place. Because just because of gravity, you're going to go into retraction. And what I like to think about maybe more is let the shoulders drop to the ground. Too many people think about pinching, which pinching entails pulling the shoulders back and that's going to pull the tricep width. Um, I think more about keep those elbows locked, feel that weight through your palm, through your elbow, through your shoulder, and let that just kind of gravity drop that shoulder to the floor while keeping that elbow locked. Um, and that's going to tend to get you into that, that retraction that you need but be able to satisfy the requirements of powerlifting of having those elbows locked and be in a position to get that start command. Mm, the, the, the raising the rack height thing is something that's helped me recently. I was actually going to bring it up before, so I'm glad you did. But mm -hmm. I went up, I went up a rack height because I had been doing my bench training on my own. Usually I would get a handout. I went to self handouts and going up one rack height like really helped me find a nice position. And I've actually found that I'm starting with the bar slightly higher. So I'm obviously protracting and reaching a little bit more at the start, but my presses mm -hmm. feel a lot better, a lot more powerful. Yep. Yeah. So I think a lot of people are, they're really scared, like on that unwrap to have any amount of like protraction. Um, and I can, you obviously don't want to press it out and overly have to do it, but you should have it at a point where like, you can't get the bar out of the rack unless your elbows are locking out. That's, that's where your rack height should be. Um, you shouldn't have to like reach for it, but you should be able to press it to lock out and then pull it over you with those locked elbows. It shouldn't be something where like you can keep a 15 degree bend in your elbow and pull it out. No problem. Cause that's where people usually get stuck into that kind of bent elbow over retract the state because they never had anything to kind of keep them accountable with that position. And the other thing is like the load's going to be sufficient enough that you're not actually going to be able to fully protract either. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if you have a one RM on there, you're not going to fully protract. You're not going to be strong enough in that position. So yeah, gravity is going to take care of it for you. So if that's, that's, I mean, obviously that's one of the biggest cues is just let gravity do its job. Um, it's, it's going to pull you into position. So I think we started this discussion and some people might've thought that you were going to basically say like, you know, actively push your shoulder through a lot of protraction and actively retract and stuff a lot. But in reality, and likewise for your elevation and depression comments, in reality, it sounds like a lot of what you're saying is that the shoulder joint will do its job very well if you let it. Um, and yep. that you've sort of just got to position yourself to take advantage of that and not so much demonize any particular positional movement. Would that be a reasonable way of summarizing what you've said? Yeah, hundred percent. And I think it's a very, like in the sense of like people having very strict views of what you should do, like it makes sense to just kind of be reasonable in the sense of you shouldn't like overly do one thing or the other. You should just have this very happy medium. That almost makes too much sense. Yet people sometimes try and be a bit too extreme on what they're going to try and bias to. Well, it's interesting. This was running through my head as you spoke is like, we're very, um, like as powerlifting coaches, I think everybody's kind of around the idea that people will squat in different ways. You know what I mean? There'll be like mm -hmm. some people squat upright, some people squat a bit more bent over, some people like a narrow stance, some people like a wide stance. Um, and even though we do see a lot of variability in how, how people set up to bench, the presumption is still that your position should absolutely be the same rather than like what you were saying, saying like very high arch wide grip benches might see less overt shoulder motion than flatter, slightly narrower gripped bench presses, then that's kind of just okay. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because when you get people who squat in different styles, you're kind of happy for them to have slightly different technical intents as well because the movement's a bit different. And it sounds to me like for bench, again, if you just let people self-organize into a good pattern, that probably those little overt shoulder motions will differ a bit, but that will still be okay. Yeah. And I think that that goes back to every lift has foundational aspects. Like the squat, there's going to be knee flexion and hip flexion, and we're trying to counterbalance over your midfoot. Outside of that, everyone's going to do that in their way that their body can allow it. So I think there's obviously the same things for the bench press. We have these foundational principles, and then from there, people's different body mechanics, their ability to arch, their grip length, um, all those kind of things are going to play into just kind of how their bench press looks versus having to force this pattern and say, well, everyone should fully retract and depress. Well, no, like there's there's different setups. So based on kind of that's, that's not like a foundational principle of what pressing is. Well, I think that's a really good place for us to leave the bench press discussion on. We're going to take a really quick break and then we'll be back with Steve to talk about some principles for exercise selection. All right. We are back on weekly weights. It's episode 120 something. We're with Steve and we had a pretty deep dive on bench, but now we want to just talk about exercise selection generally. You just put out this series, it's pretty long, um, about squat, bench and deadlift and your favorite variations. And from that content, it seems that there's a bit of a paradigm through which you select exercises for, for your programs. So could you maybe just articulate what goes, what goes through your mind when you're picking an exercise? Yeah. So first kind of touching on like direct variants of the competition lifts, um, cause that's kind of what that really dived into. And that's kind of what probably more people care about. So, um, in a absolute perfect world, we could squat bench and deadlift the competition movements and everything would be fine and dandy and we'd feel great all the time. Um, but I think anyone who is just comp squatted three days a week, comp bench four days a week, comp deadlifted twice a week, they've seen kind of the downfalls of that. Um, and there's kind of multiple downfalls of kind of why we need variation. Um, and I kind of have four general main reasons is one, it's self-limiting. 
um, and the self-limiting, which then kind of goes into the ability to manage fatigue and workload. Obviously, um, if we are doing the competition lift, we are at all times using the maximal weight that we can handle. Um, and it's in sense in then inducing more fatigue where when we can use a self-limiting variation, we can be able to kind of work towards these, these higher relative intensities or RPEs, but with actually lower absolute workload to in sense be able to induce lower fatigue. And so that can either one be used because uh, year round, maybe we need to kind of have these periods where we're not pushing so hard. Um, or two, I even have athletes maybe all the way into competition, they're gonna use that for the reason that um, they just can't handle those competition lifts on all days, every day, they just get too beat up. So we can be able to kind of manage fatigue while still keeping kind of relative intensity and volume at a certain point that's needed and use that for a stimulus while using kind of these variants to kind of accomplish that task. Um, secondly, um, or really that's the first two that, and then next up would be um, movement ability um, or kind of technique is sometimes just, just general cueing doesn't click with someone. So we choose a variation that is going to punish them if they get into the wrong position. Um, so something that's like a, like a tempo bench press. So let's say something, someone we're talking about bench press a lot. Let's say someone is coming down. They tend to dump the bar. They have this bouncy pause. They're not very stable on their chest. Well, you go give them a tempo bench and they're just going to naturally start to kind of, if they actually tempo it all the way down and maybe even a tempo Larson press, um, they're going to have more control coming all the way down. If you do a Larson press, if they dump it, they're going to get really kind of um, punished for that because they don't have leg drive to be able to kind of self-correct that position. They're going to have to somehow kind of get out of that position just to their upper body alone. So we choose these different variations that will in a sense kind of help to improve movement. Um, that maybe the competition movements with cueing wasn't accomplishing well, or maybe this is just an easier way to do it um, for someone to kind of just be able to feel because some people aren't very good with body awareness. They more need to feel. And if you give them these variants, they can kind of feel what things should feel like to then transfer that, uh, which that kind of leads in the last thing is kind of the transference of strength. Um, I think this one's a little bit more rare. Um, this is kind of a little bit more like conjugate West side. This is what they do is thinking like a variation has a direct transfer of strength to the competition movement. Um, I think that's pretty rare. I don't think usually like because we do safety bar squats, we always see our regular squat go up. I think it's more we see technical improvement. We see the self-limiting and fatigue aspects, and that's what helps our regular squat go up. But at the same time, there is sometimes that happens. Sometimes you see this movement that every time you do it and you come back to their actual competition movement, it's stronger. Whether that is just a technical improvement, whether that's something else, who knows? But we do see some type of transfer of strength where when we come back to the competition lift, we, we see some 1RM change in a positive light um, that seems to correlate with the use of that variant. So, uh, and then I'll touch on accessory movements for a second too. Accessory movements are obviously a little bit different. Um, we're looking more in the sense of hypertrophy. Um, usually that's what we're kind of going for. And that kind of goes back to like, let's say we have a super long femur squatter um, and squats just do not do a good ass or a good job of kind of targeting his quadriceps in the sense of hypertrophy. Um, that's, a, I think that's a lot of people. So we, instead of using squats for that kind of, uh, purpose, we then use something like a belt squat or single leg variations or leg press that are going to be more targeted to actually hypertrophy aspect to accomplish that task. Um, or I even kind of touched on too, is the other reason for accessory movement is just movement variability. Uh, a dumbbell bench press is going to get through a little bit more range of motion than a competition bench press. We're going to get, and generally I, this isn't like, I don't think it's proven by research, but it just seems to be that variability in movement and not just being stuck in the same patterns over and over seems to make someone a bit more resilient. So. Yeah. I mean, that was a bunch of very good reasons to have variation. 
I think the important thing, or at least I think, is that not all of those are mutually opposed. You know, a mm -hmm. movement can be load limiting, load limiting, sorry, whilst also giving you technical benefit, whilst also exposing you to different positions and things like that as well. And so with that in mind, do you have specific slots when you start writing out a program where you say like, you know, I've got my primary squat here and then I want a secondary squat for this purpose and a tertiary squat for this one? Or if not, how do you go about sort of pulling from each of those reasons to decide which exercise to give someone? Yeah. So I think when choosing variants, um, and this kind of goes back, um, like anyone watches my YouTube videos, the variations I chose weren't some like big shocker. Like you're going to watch those and be like, Steve, you chose a pause deadlift, a pause squat. Like these are like things that like, yeah, everyone does these. That wasn't necessarily the point though. The point is that like they were hour long videos, not because I, I said these magical variations, they were hour long videos because there should be, there's an extreme amount of thought that goes into why each one of these can be programmed. It's not just like, oh, I program a pause squat and someone gets better in the bottom position. No, there's there's a lot of different aspects to programming these. So, um, I mean, really the thing I'm gonna be looking at is I'm looking at the lifter and what are we trying to problem solve? And within that, does the competition lifts itself satisfy the need to problem solve that issue? Um, if it doesn't, how can I be able to use variations to do that? So do I have a lifter who is, um, trying to dive bomb into the hole um, and not having enough control. Um, I can cue them to do that, but I've seen that that hasn't really worked. So I'm going to have to problem solve in a different way of giving them a pause squat or a tempo squat. Um, I have a lifter who we've been competition benching three days a week, but every time we do that, we see some inconsistencies on that primary day where we don't see this consistent kind of the strength on that day we want. And it's, it's, we see these fluctuations. So I say, okay, well, let's make that tertiary day a Larson bench to see if that kind of helps us self-limit the load um, so that when we come back around to that primary day, are we gonna see a little bit more consistent performance because we were able to get the volume in on, in sense, the pressing muscles, but we were able to self-limit the load. So there's just a lot of things of like, okay, here's the problem, how am I gonna solve it? And does this variation something that's gonna not only solve that issue, but maybe it's gonna solve multiple issues. Cause you kind of allude to that. Like, can we have a variation that kills multiple birds with one stone? Um, and that's where specificity kind of comes into play. Like the further away we are away, from um, the specificity realm in the sense of the competition lift, probably the less that's going to help in the sense of multiple aspects in one time, um, if that makes sense. So that's why I tend to not stray too far away from specificity. Like I wouldn't say any variations I use or anything crazy um, because we're wanting to be as close as we can to that competition lift. Um, because one, it's probably going to have the most direct carryover. And then two, it's going to be the easiest to come back into that competition lift afterwards it's going to be a very easy transition back so i had a question about um lifter technique and how that sort of relates to the assistance exercises that you choose so like mm -hmm. how how would you for instance think about programming accessories for someone with a closer grip bench press with a small arch versus someone with a wider grip bench press and a big arch like um, what, what's the kind of thought process there so um looking at what are the relative faults that both of those have? So um, on a wide grip bencher, um, we tend to see, I think you see it on both, but you tend to see um, chest collapse and that's going to probably affect them a bit more um, because when you're trying to kind of get that wider grip, higher arch, we're doing that to cut range of motion. So if you're in sense, you're not cutting range of motion by having this chest collapse, you're having this kind of dumping the bar, you're going to get really punished by it. So we're going to have to kind of improve that. Um, whereas with a close grip bench press, 
I would say yeah, this is kind of a little, it's probably a little debatable. I look at a close group. I don't want to say it's less technical, but I think it's more muscular dependent. Like you can see a bunch of wide grip benchers pressing a lot of weight and they're not like super jacked sometimes. Now, I think in general, like with the bench press, probably more than the other movement, being jacked and just having more muscle tends to help. With a closer grip bencher, I'm going to probably say we need more muscle mass. We're probably going to do more accessory and hypertrophy-based movements. And not that that wouldn't help a wide grip bencher, but I think it's going to be more um, imperative for a close grip bencher to have really jacked triceps, really jacked pecs, because they're going through a large range of motion and they're just using just general strength to lift that weight and not being over technical with the technique being what kind of produces the ability to output that strength. So... We spoke just before Alex's question about how you can have exercises that sort of kill multiple birds. Um, but on the flip side, I can imagine there's a downside where you try and make one exercise do everything and it does nothing well, um, if that makes sense as well. you know. Um, mm -hmm. And so is there a way in which you, again, you make an assessment of a lift or you make an assessment of a program and say, I'm going to try this intervention first. So say somebody's got three or four problems in their squat that you could feasibly address with secondary exercises. Is there a way in which you sort of say, I'm gonna tackle this first problem or, or an exercise that does all of this best? You know, and at what point do you start making compromises? So I would say, like, let's say a lifter has four different things. There's probably a hierarchy within those things of what matters. Um, I'm trying to think of specific examples, but let's say uh, a lifter is, on a squat, they have a pretty significant anterior tilt. They're pushing forward at the bottom of the squat and losing their midfoot position, going to their toes. They have a slight shift to the right. And then as they're coming up, they have a hip shoot and their upper back collapses. The fact of the matter is, is at least three of those probably can be solved by one thing. If we could somehow improve that person's ability to manage their pelvic orientation better, they're one going to be more neutral Two, what tends to happen with people shifting forward is because they get to the bottom, they run out of room with hip flexion. So they have to shove forward in the knees and, or they, they get into a butt wing pattern, which then the butt kind of shoves the knees forward. Um, and then because of that, they then shift backwards. So you might look at that as three different issues, but they all kind of relatively come back to the same thing. So one, maybe cueing can help, but two, maybe I put them under a safety bar. A safety bar almost naturally pulls someone into a more neutral position because the, the relative kind of weight distribution and bias of it kind of curls you down. Like it's very hard to kind of bias into extension there, just much like a goblet squat and something that's more interiorly loaded. But because a safety bar, even though it's kind of interiorly loaded, the weight is on your back, it's a bit of a closer variant than something like, let's say, a front squat. So I could just throw them on that, fix three of those immediately, um, and I'll say those are more important because they are all intertwined where the shift isn't something I'm not going to say isn't important, but one thing fixes three problems versus the other one wouldn't be fixed by the same thing, if that makes sense. So it's finding out what, what's going, if we have four issues, what single variation cue, what, what can we do that can attack most of those that are the most important let's fix those and then once those are better then we can kind of look at those more minute details that might not be making as much of a difference maybe not even affecting strength that much but maybe it's just something that we want to kind of work on so well there's an important subtext here as well which is that imperfection doesn't always preclude you making gains right it's mm -hmm. you can iterative, iteratively improve as a lifter and improve your strength gradually and see trends towards perfection whereas if you're so up your own butt about 
having a perfect squat all the time. So you might not necessarily actually train hard enough to get better. And I think that's an important lesson too. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I and mean, that's, that's where I kind of go to. That's why like you have four issues, all four of them aren't going to be equally important. There, there's a good chance maybe one or two of those are actually in sense somehow affecting strength output and two of them, they're really not, maybe they don't look pretty to the eye, but they're not really changing anything. Like if they're not causing pain, they're not affecting strength. They're, they're definitely on the lower tier of what we need to worry about. Like that would be like maybe something we never worry about. So when we're choosing exercises, do you think there are any sort of universal qualities that just make things better than others? Uh, I would say if I'm looking like, I'm going to go back to my, my three favorite, if I'm looking at my favorite movement for the squat bench and deadlift, the squat is pause squats. The deadlift is pause deadlifts. The bench is tempo bench press. All three of those come back to increased control. Um, we need to be able to control and manage positions throughout our movement. And we should only do that we should only move as fast in the sense of our descent in the sense of our setup on deadlift in the sense of descent on the, on the, on the bench as fast as we can manage position. Cause if we lose position, that is directly affecting our ability to uh, improve force output. Um, I mean, there's some people that I, this is actually me. I actually still to this day, tempo my squat. I found so much benefit in managing position and control with a tempo that I found I was actually stronger doing that. And so I think a lot of what I do with variations, I mean, if there's one main thing that probably is the primary thing, that's the point of them is, is being able to increase control and possibly patience to manage these positions to then hopefully transfer those positions to your competition movements. Mm, that's something I've certainly noticed for me in the squat and the deadlift, I'm often rushing my way out of the bottom position. Um, and in, in doing that, losing positioning. And so, you know, doing pause squats is forcing me to hold my shape. And same thing with pause deadlifts as well. That makes yep. a lot of sense. And one of the big things with those two is I already kind of mentioned this is the ability to transfer back to the competition lift. Tempo squats are great. They're not one of my favorites, though, even though I use them, they're not one of my favorites because I don't know if you guys have ever done tempo squats and then gone back to regular squats. All of a sudden, you don't remember how to squat anymore. Mm, the rhythm's so a bit different. off, yeah. It's so different, like the tempo is so different that you, you kind of forget how to squat. Where a pause squat, you don't even have to cue someone to like tempo it. They're naturally going to decelerate a bit sooner because they know there's nowhere to go and they don't want to just slam down. They want to be able to control that pause. They'll tend to like, let's say they normally have a 0.75 second descent. They'll kind of slow down to 1.25 seconds, just naturally without you even cueing it because they know they have to get into that kind of pause position that's way easier to then transfer back to their regular squat than it is to transfer a three second eccentric action back to your regular squat. So it's looking at what is also, there's also a big aspect of not only does it fix the issue, can we easily transfer back to our competition movement without much of kind of like a relearning process. And, and other than those, those three that you mentioned, what are some others that you go to in your programming? What are some of your favorites? So um, squat, absolutely love safety bar squats. Um, I think, the safety bar, if, if you, I don't know if you guys use them much, but um, they allow you to be fairly mindless. Um, where if someone's really overthinking their squat, they're too in their head, put them under a safety bar and all of a sudden they squat great and they barely have to think about it. Just because of that weight distribution and weight bias, it tends to pull us into really good positions. Again, just much like a, a goblet squat, which is why like general population wise, a lot of times the first thing you teach someone is a goblet squat because it, it will naturally create a better squat position. So I love safety bar squats, not only for the technique aspect, it's self-limiting. And then two, 
Uh, there's been multiple issues I've seen. I'll, I'll use one in particular, like hip flexor pain. Um, a lot of people tend to get hip flexor pain in the squat. And number one reason for that is some type of anterior rotation, either on both sides or more one side versus the other, which is then kind of cutting off that femur's range of motion within the hip. So um, if that safety bar is going to allow you to be able to have a better neutral position, get more room for that femur to move, I, I tend to put someone on that and all of a sudden the hip flexor pain goes away. So it tends to be a good kind of workaround for injury issues as well. Um, and then my last variation I really like for uh, squatting um, is barefoot squats. Um, I'm a big fan of people being able to have good control of their foot. Um, and being able to have a good understanding of what their midfoot position is. Are they, are they biasing to the ball of their feet? Are they biasing towards their heel? So a barefoot squat is definitely not something like as, as useful in the sense of a pause squat in the sense of pause squats can be used year round, multiple modalities. A barefoot squat is definitely more the technique aspect. Um, we're using that for kind of a technique improvement that maybe someone who is squatting in their shoe just can never get to. So, um, for bench press, I really like tempo bench. I really like Larson bench press. I think Larson um, has really good self-limiting aspects as well as it teaches really good upper body control. I think one, um, leg drive should manage most of our position on bench press, but we should still be able to maintain that position without leg drive. Um, and Larson really teaches the way for our kind of upper body and kind of our erectors and lats to be able to kind of manage that kind of lower back and that thoracic extension um, to be able to kind of make sure we can maintain that. Uh, and then lastly, um, this is kind of going back to the fact, just the fact that I probably most of my people have kind of bias more towards a wider grip um, just because of who I coach. Um, I don't have many close grip benchers. So for my wider grip benchers, I tend to really like doing a little bit of a closer grip variant. And so I do a close grip bench, which for me, that would just be three fingers in. Um, I don't know if you guys follow Angelo Fortino, um, but uh, he gets trolled on like crazy because Joe Stanek, I know you've had him on because I actually listened to that episode. Joe Stanek programs close grip bench and it's only two fingers in. And all the bodybuilders are like, that's not close grip. That's just a regular bench press. Well, no, we want to keep it in the fairly close variant of, so it has a good transfer. It doesn't have a great difference in movement, but it's still going to allow probably a little bit greater range of motion, which is going to be a little bit more challenging, but also kind of in sense, hopefully, and have better hypertrophic effect. Um, and also kind of changes the volume because I, I like to look at volume. This could be a rabbit hole. So I'm going to be quick about this. Most times volume is sets times reps times weight, but I think distance is a factor we forget about. Now we're not going to equate that in. That's way too hard, but distance is a factor. That's why people who bench one inch range of motion are going to be able to handle different volume than someone who benches through three feet range of motion. So, um, and then lastly, deadlift. Love pause deadlifts. I just think they're really, really good in the sense of helping someone kind of uh, improve their setup position and be more patient. Um, I love RDLs, Romanian deadlifts, mainly because it's unreal how many powerlifters don't know how to hinge. Um, that seems like that should be like the, the foundational thing before you even deadlift, which back when I was a personal trainer, that is, you, you have to hinge before you know to, to deadlift. That, that's, that's, that's the precursor. So uh, RDLs, I think is foundational aspect of that. And then this kind of goes like just same with like the barefoot squat. I really like uh, soft touch or eccentric deadlifts to a soft touch. Um, and that is strictly a technique based movement. I'm not trying to overload that. I'm not really trying to do anything outside of that's going to be really helpful for someone being able to kind of understand what is their starting position. People always have the question, where should the bar start in my stance? Are my hips too high? What should they do? Have them do a eccentric deadlift and then kind of soft touch and hold it there. And they'll naturally end up right where they should be. And then answers all of your questions of kind of what should, what's your optimal starting position. Cool. Reach. So what about your, what about um, sumo versus conventional? Is there any things that you highlight more with your lifters 
for who are conventional pullers versus sumo pullers? Yes. So, um, I mean, I say one thing is for sumo, I will possibly use conventional as a, a, a lift to be able to aid that in the sense of sumo tends to, sumo is kind of in between conventional and the squat. Um, it, it's not super, it's not as hingy, it's not as, but it's a little bit more knee flexion than the conventional. So I tend to like conventional to bias a little bit more of kind of training that posterior chain. Um, that's dependent on the person though. If they're super, super advanced, I don't think they get as much from a conventional deadlift. I think novices tend to get a little bit more from that either one, just because it's, I would argue it's maybe a little bit better of a muscle builder in the sense of the combination of squats. Um, but two, if a novice um, maybe doesn't have as strong of a back, it's going to have a good kind of transfer over their sumo where I don't know if that's going to happen as much with an advanced lifter um, where I, I wouldn't do the opposite. I don't really have, I don't think I've ever really had a conventional deadlifter do sumo deadlifts because I don't really think it's going to have much benefit for them. So um, outside of that, I'd say it's pretty similar. I say the only thing is that I find people can handle competition sumo deadlifts twice a week more often than they can handle competition conventional deadlifts twice a week. Um, conventional just seems to be a bit more systematically fatiguing. I don't know why that is particular, um, particularly maybe it's just because of the general low back fatigue, it kind of accumulates with squat, but, um, I definitely have a lot more people that I just find that we can only conventional deadlift once a week. And then we have to do like RDLs on the opposite day where I definitely have a lot more sumo deadlifters that can sumo deadlift twice a week. And they have no issue with that. And they don't send to tend to accumulate too much fatigue from that. So. Word. Well, I think that was pretty cool. I think we could probably wrap the discussion up there unless you got a whole lot more to add. And then I want to hit you with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. What do you say? That sounds good to me. All righty. Quick break. We're back on Weekly Weights with Steve and we're going to hit him with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. He's on his computer and he's got them highlighted. So he's kind of cheated, but we'll let him go and we'll see what comes out. So question one is, if you could take anyone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? So. Don't act like I you're thinking about it. You told us, you told us you prepared. This is the only one I really remember too much. Now, actually, since I'm seeing, I'm remembering a little bit more because I did not cheat very much. I listened to another podcast and I heard them and I remember them too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wait, was it Weekly Weights or was it Massonomics? Because apparently Alex stole this concept from them. Do you remember that? Not this concept. That was the other concept. All right. We got a one-star review at one stage because Alex had come in and said that he had a new segment for us. He was really proud of it. And I was like, oh, it's a great idea. And we debuted it and immediately got a one-star review on iTunes. And some guy just called us out because he'd straight up plagiarized it from another fitness podcast. I don't listen to fitness podcasts. So it wasn't that. It was from sports podcast but whatever point, hey, point okay. is sorry you like to read okay um probably one of my favorite things to read is biographies on multi multi-billionaires two that i've read recently that i just absolutely love uh, was phil knight and elon musk so i would love i would say probably phil knight um that's the he, nike guy right yes nike because he's a little bit different like elon musk or steve jobs or bill gates they're just straight geniuses and i don't know if i could comprehend on their level or anyone can really comprehend on their they're just kind of like they would be cool to hear their stories but they're just on a different level phil knight was a pretty regular dude um that somehow that created nike and there's a there, he he if you if you I don't, I don't know if you've ever read anything about them but if you read about steve jobs bill gates and elon they kind of are successful for similar reasons. Phil was definitely successful for a different reason. So I really just love to pick his brain as well as the fact that since I love sports, 
dude's got to have some cool sports stories. Like he's got to have, he's got to have some, some interesting things to kind of talk about. Um, so yeah, I'd say Phil Knight, that would be a fun conversation. How, uh, number how, two. how lucky did he get with Michael Jordan signing with Nike? Like that was the big thing that really like set him off. Oh, yeah. Right? Unbelievably lucky. I mean, cause it wasn't really supposed like N- Nike at that time wasn't like a big brand. They were mainly just a running brand and they were yeah. just, I think they were just starting to get into like doing like other sports. Um, and basically I, what I got gathered is the reason Michael signed with them is because Michael has such a big ego that he wasn't going to sign with Adidas and be another one of those guys. He wanted to be with Nike so he could be the guy and just be like, yeah, all they're going to care about is me. Yeah. So. Well, it was, it was converse at that point. Bird and, oh, yeah, Bird yeah. and magic were converse. Yeah. Yeah. So if I had a number two, Malcolm Gladwell. Oh yeah. Mal- yeah. Malcolm Gladwell would be interesting. I, um, I read, talking to strangers recently, but what's the other one? Blink, the one that yep. talks about, yeah. Um, I'm really interested to read that because I actually, I read Thinking Fast and Slow and in Thinking Fast and Slow, they spoke a little bit about intuition and he referred to some stuff in Gladwell's Blink. And I found it really interesting because some of what they said about intuition actually has a lot to do with coaching. Um, they were talking about how you can sort of trust intuition in environments where if you did have complete knowledge, you could make accurate predictions about the outcomes. And the example they used was like firemen being able to predict when a house would collapse, say, where they do it, they do it in the spur of the moment when they're in the house. They obviously don't have complete knowledge and analysis, but there is some underlying knowledge informing that intuition. And I think similar things can be said for when coaches sort of look at lifters and things and say, this person probably needs to do a bit more of X, Y, and Z. They might do it almost off the cuff, but that off-the-cuff analysis is informed by a lot of deep knowledge. And so understanding sort of where that intuition arises and why it might be fallible would be interesting too. So I'd love to talk to Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, no, he's just uh, he's probably my favorite author in the sense of kind of like, is it nonfiction? Yeah, or fiction, nonfiction, I get it. Nonfiction. He, nonfiction. He's probably my favorite. I love that because I'm I'm an MBA in marketing. So I have a marketing background. He very much kind of biases towards that. And I actually have a, a minor in uh, behavioral psychology. And that's kind of really what he's going into is like, okay, we do these things, but why do we do these things? Like we, we see all these phenomenons and all these things that happen, but like, why is that? And his book, I just, I find it unbelievably interesting. So he'd be an inter- interesting person to talk to, I feel like. Uh, that'd be a very good stick dinner. What's question two, Alex? So staying, staying on the theme of sports, who is your favorite athlete of all time? Uh, I mean, it sounds cliche, but I probably cliche, but I probably say Michael Jordan, but actually I know who I'll say, cause we were just talking about this cause it's going on right now. Drew Brees, my favorite athlete of all time. I knew it. Who, is he's, a quarterback? he's the Saints quarterback. Yeah. He's like, he's 40, he he's so, like 42, 42. Have you heard of Purdue university? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I went to Purdue University. Drew Brees went to Purdue University. He he was before my time, but he's like the god of Purdue. Like he he is all the lore. I mean, any any restaurant you go to has some special Drew Brees special and whatnot. So if you went to Purdue, you you have to like Drew Brees. Literally, I remember that the Saints played the Colts in the Super Bowl. I think my sophomore year, and that's in Indiana. And so there's tons of Colts fans, but Drew Brees is so like big there that like the campus was completely split. Like people couldn't decide who they want. So yeah, Drew Brees favorite athlete all the time. Not only because of that, he's just a good dude. I don't know if you know much about him. He's just a great, great guy. He's married to his, his college sweetheart. Um, very good philanthropist. Or I can't say it. Very good uh, giving dude. So yeah, I like him. Philanthropist. Hey, a philanthropist would be somebody who gives money away for fun. How many, how many rings does he have now? Does he have two? One. We need one, one this year. Cause he's going to retire. This is his last year. 
Okay. Got it. I hopefully I don't know what's going on. I'm turning off my phone so no one texts me. But hopefully, who, he, who are they uh, playing right now? The Bucks and Tom Brady. Oh, okay, cool. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, because Tom is Tom, Tom Brady's Brady not retiring anytime soon, but he's also north of. Oh, 40, he'll keep going. He? Yeah, he's going to keep going. Yeah, he's 42. Jesus, that's that's incredible. I heard somebody um recently make this observation that I mean Tom Brady's a bit kooky. But he was saying, like, a lot of the athletes who have had really impressive longevity, and they did mention Brady, LeBron James is a good example, Drew Brees is a good example, you know, Federer. A lot of these people who've been around for so long, they seem to be very well-rounded individuals as well. It's like like the flame doesn't turn burn out too bright because they're, you know, they still have, like, a solid family life. They seem to just be, going on, yeah. yeah, like, they're just well-adjusted people. I think that's extra admirable, like, to be that excellent for that long, you know? Yeah. I think that kind of plays back into being able to still continue to love the sport. I think, I mean, that to go back to powerlifting. People get way too obsessed with it. They get burned out and then they're out in four years. Um, being able to have something else kind of helps to kind of long, keep that longevity of the sport um, to be able to continue to love it and have passion for it. Um, because you can be a great athlete, but if you hate playing, you're not going to, you're not going to put the same amount of effort into it. So. hundred percent. Question three, which movie or television character do you most resemble? Hmm. Hmm. Am I allowed to say, it, go on it, does youtube count as television absolutely okay. i think so i love youtube okay there's two people then i'll say personality and then literally there's a person so you know kid kids bops is no okay. you probably never listened to it i didn't realize this until someone sent to me if you go search kid bops on youtube there's the kid that's like the main dancer and singer for it is literally my twin he looks exactly like me and it's actually scary bops b-o-p-s b-o-p-z kid bops kid bops click on it and the main the main person from kid bops there's like four kids one of them is this tall lanky white kid with blonde hair and click on that lineup one <laughs> we've got I- him on that the one no not him no not him no, that's, that's got to be the wrong one. Okay, so he looks just like you, is what you're looks saying. Looks just like me. If you're going doppelganger him, two, um, I might not be as – no, not him either. Come on, Alex. How many yeah, go on. I'll send, I'll send it to you when we get off the call. Yeah. And personality? Um, uh, no, not him either. <laughs> Give it up, not, Alex. It's not him. Give it up. Yeah, personality, who was it? <laughs> I, my wife, she watches these videos with me mainly because she's like, she literally thinks she's watching me. Max tuning. I'm very similar to him. Max I might not be as, I'm not as like outgoing as he is, but if you want to know someone, no. Uh, what? Just stop. Right. Yeah. Max tuning. <laughs> is Max tuning the one who came up with the gummy strap business? Yeah, recently? Yeah. 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 Okay. Pretty cool. Well, you reckon personality wise is similar to him. So. Yeah. Do you like lollies? What do you say? Do you like lollies? Do you guys call them lollies? Do, do you call them candy? Do you, also, do you also deadlift really badly? Oh, come on, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I've got long arms and my legs are really skinny. So, yes, I looked, I literally, my physique looks like his too. So, but he deadlifts um, badly. So, uh, I, I've never heard lollies, but I'm assuming <laughs> it's candy. Alluded to a candy. Well, we call yeah, candy, I like candy. We call candy like hard candy, whereas like lollies are like gummies and stuff. Got it. That's, that's I was told to ask for us. Who? Joel uh, Mir. Yeah. Joe. Yeah. What's, 
what's the word he told me? I got to look it up. He told me I had oh. to ask you what a word meant. Yeah, maybe Joel, just because he likes the way you say it or something. I don't know. Oh, uh, he wants me to say yeehaw. He wants me to do a Texas accent. That's what no, it was. It's not, that was sure? not it. So Joel, um, Joel was partnered with me during I did the compound performance mentorship oh, at right, the same right. time as him. Um, and so we chatted a bit, and he just thinks everything Australian is so funny, and he doesn't understand it. So I've been sending him brown cardigan posts <laughs> on Instagram to try bubbler. What's a What's bubbler? That? Oh, bubbler. A bubbler. He, he didn't know what a bubbler was. It's like a, it's a drink event. Yeah. Okay. He had no idea. I told my wife that, and she I, she had some interesting things that were mainly sexual. So, Well, you can also – the bubbler is another – the bubbler is also a technique where one urinates in their own mouth, and there was a – there was an Australian. <laughs> there was an Australian rugby personality who very famously was filmed doing that. That was a um, photo. Photo? Yeah, it was a photo. Well, um, doing that, and that that sort of ended his career prematurely. So the bubbler um, <laughs> is notorious. But the reason the reason Joel asked that is because I did a Q and A where somebody said like, if you were ruling the world, what would you do? And there's a running joke in Australia that when you're running for like the student representative councils in primary school. Um, everybody says like, I'll get Coke put in the bubblers, you know? So like, so the kids can drink soft drink from the drinking fountains. So I said Coke in the bubblers and he just wrote to me straight away going, what the <laughs> fuck is a bubbler? <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Um, question four, your life's being made into a movie montage. You get to choose the music that it's set to. What would you pick? This is one I didn't remember. So I don't, I got to think on this one movie that would be there. Uh, I probably just have Miley Cyrus party in USA play over oh, and over a, and over. What a banger. That is a tune. Have you heard the Biggie Smalls remix? No, I don't think I have. No party and bullshit in the USA. Okay. Is it okay, good? Look it up when this podcast is over and everyone okay. who's still listening, look that up. It is awesome. It's you know, the Biggie verse and then it's the Miley chorus and it's the Miley backing. Oh, that would be a tune. It's so good. You know, I listened to Miley on Rogan and she sounds like a fucking legend yeah, of a chick. Cool. She's really cool. Like she's obviously a bit loopy. You couldn't not be if you'd lived her life, but she sounds like great fun. I reckon she's a sick cool. She's a sick chick. Do you say that? Do you call girls chicks? Yeah, chicks. Yeah. Yeah, Matt. Well, to call them birds? Sheila's? No, not birds. Sheila's. That would probably, that would probably be... <laughs> I don't want to say derogatory, but that would be a uh, possibly taken as a uh, insult on their appearance. Really, birds? No, oh, won't say that when I'm in the US. I'm just always. Them, first thing I think about: Have you ever watched Always Sunny in Philadelphia? No, I haven't. Okay. Well, D, the main character, they make fun of her and call her a bird all the time. That they, that's because she has a long neck and she's super skinny and looks lanky. Oh, well, that's different. If I said you're bird-like, yeah, I'm you're gonna say you look like a bird. Yeah. It's like, it's just like calling them chicks. Like birds are chicks. Chicks are young chickens, which are birds. No, I hadn't thought about that. I was just thinking birds are the bees. All right. I'll Next week on Weekly Wags, the origin <laughs> I'll, of... I'll, I'll test it out. I'll, I'll go, yeah, I'll, I'll go with my wife to saying, hey, babe, I'll say, hey, bird, come get me something. See what she says. <laughs> I think it's the come get me something that's going to get you in trouble, man. <laughs> yeah, make sure you add please to the end. Yeah. By the time please. this goes to air, that'll be an ex-wife as well, which is that's amazing. <laughs> there's, there's an inside scoop for you. Um, man, I've really appreciated your time, especially because it is Sunday night and the game's on. Before we let you go watch it, please tell everybody where they can get in contact with you for coaching, where they can follow you on social media, how to find your YouTube videos. Just give us the full deal. 
Yep. Uh, so on Instagram, it's uh, at PRS underscore performance. Uh, that'll actually help you find my YouTube page because if you just search PRS performance on YouTube, that'll get my YouTube channel as well. Uh, I mean, both of those, I don't post about me. I mean, I'm not impressive with lifting. So both of them are completely either one hyping up my lifters or two, just, uh, I mean, what, one of the biggest routes I took as a powerlifting coach was just putting out content because that was the, the way I could kind of differentiate myself, especially the long form, because that was something some people weren't really doing is kind of the long form content. So even though that's not for everyone, it definitely has a big niche. So um, also have a website. So interest in coaching, you can go on there. I'm actually, I mean, I'll, I'll say I probably won't be taking on anyone for about six to nine months. So uh, but that's also why I put on uh, a lot of my information because I, I know I, I take on a very limited number of people. Um, so I love putting out content so I can be able to kind of expand my reach that way. So Excellent, man. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Alex, you want to give him the sign out? Uh, I'm Alex Hayes underscore process. And I'm at W.BergmanPT. And we'll chat to you next week. Maybe. Maybe. Peace out. <laughs>